Well, I'm concluding a series today called Respectfully, and um, we, we got to go there today. This is the last lesson in the series, so we're getting ready to go all the way there. So the Gospel of John, chapter number 8, beginning at verse number 3. John 8, verse number 3. We're getting ready to go all the way there. Uh, everybody take a deep breath. If you're ready, put I'm ready in the chat. Yeah, I wrestle with this a little bit, but my heart is burdened, and I feel like this is something that uh, at least the Lord wants me to contribute to and uh, address to a degree. Uh, no one person can fix all problems. I think it's a little, you've, you're thinking like, you're thinking a little in a way that's kind of messianic or even narcissistic if you think you can. So m nobody's job is to fix all the problems. Your job is to play the part God wants you to play in addressing it. And so that's part of what I want to do in this message today. John 8 chapter 3 says, The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought him a woman called in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act and the law of Moses told, tells us to stone her. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing in the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stepped down and wrote in the ground at this those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, <laughs> until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go and live your life. Go and leave your life of sin. I want to stop reading right there and I want to use, I want to tag a, a, a title to this text, the final sermon in our series called Respectfully, where we're receiving biblical tips for tough talks. We've had tough talks with, a, we've got guidance on how to have tough talks with a number of people. Today, we're going to use God's word to help us have tough talks with Christians. And I want to talk from this subject, church trauma. church church trauma family i want to ease into this introduction with this axiom i want to inform some of this truth and remind others of this truth that god is a creator listen to me but the enemy is a cloner god creates the enemy clones. I'm simply suggest suggesting that the enemy desperately desires to pervert the purpose of anything that God creates. And he does so by creating counterfeits that emulate the authenticity of what God originally intended. Is this not what the Apostle Paul said when he says these words? And Satan himself has transformed himself into an angel of light. In other words, the devil doesn't always show up looking like the devil. Let me reframe and rephrase that. The devil rarely shows up looking like the devil. 
Even our first introduction to the enemy is in the book of Genesis. And the Bible frames that context as a garden. And the Bible says that the enemy shows up like a serpent. We don't know if that's literal or, or if that's metaphorical. But here's the point we need to pull from that passage is this. If you in a garden, a snake doesn't look out of place. Because the enemy shows up looking like he belongs. Because if the enemy appeared to be an enemy, he would have never gotten Eve's ear. So in the garden, he looks like a snake. In the church, he looks like a Christian. Because God creates... But the enemy clones and he wants to pervert the purpose of what God creates. This is the case in our life. And this is the case with God's primary instrument of transformation in the earth, which is the church. Regardless of our feelings about the church, God has chosen to use the church as the primary instrument of transformation in the earth. The church is the embassy of the kingdom of God. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head. He does the thinking and the directing. He holds the authority, but the church is the body. And so we execute the commands that we're receiving from the head. We are Jesus' hands and feet in the earth there is no plan b there is no other dispensation coming where god gives something else to accomplish his agenda in the earth and so because the enemy is aware of this in his attempt to pervert the purpose of god for the church he infects and affects the church to the degree that the church does not effectively carry out its assignment. Because it's God's intention that his ecclesia, his, his church, be an instrument for the development and the discipleship of his people. That's Matthew 28. It's what's called the Great Commission. Before Jesus experiences an ascension, he leaves instruction. Now, if I'm getting ready to leave you, the last thing I'll tell you is important. And this is important for us to wrap our head around because if not, we'll start imposing our priorities on the church as opposed to receiving Jesus' priorities on the church. And Jesus made a priority of not just getting people to heaven. See, come on. No, no, no. He said, I want you to make disciples of all nations. Don't miss this. So it was God's intention that the church be a place of development. But the enemy wants to pervert its purpose and use it as a place of destruction. So as opposed to it being a safe place where we can get teaching on how to live the king's way. It becomes in some cases an unsafe place. Where people get traumatized. We talk about trauma from every other space, but avoid talking about trauma in the space where people least expect it, but experience it often. 
and that is trauma that comes from people's religious experiences some people oh, come on some people have defected from the faith not because of teaching but because of trauma it, it wasn't some people have defected from the faith not because there weren't enough lights in the worship service but because there was not enough light in the Christians that they were worshiping with and it's important for us as believers to care about these people because Jesus does. He tells an entire parable about how a shepherd leaves 99 to go after the one to reveal to us that even if people who are traumatized by church are the minority, they still are a priority to the father. See, come on. See, come on. You don't have to be a majority to be a priority to the Father. Thanks be unto God. I don't have to be a majority to be a priority. The reason some of us are saying in the membrane because we were a priority. The reason we've been protected from danger seen and unseen is because he made you a priority. The reason you are where you are is because he got strategic and specific and meticulous and said, I'm going to order every one of your steps. Hallelujah. Yeah, what the devil meant for evil, I'm going to work for good. I'm so into you, the hairs on your head aren't just counted. Jesus said they numbered. I know which one belongs where. I'm into you just like that because I decided to make you a priority. And for those of us who got that revelation, it said, God, because you made me a priority, I can't help but give you praise. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what anybody else is going to do. But I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house. Of the Lord. Yeah, they matter to God. So we'll never be able to prevent this. But we want church trauma, but we can't minimize it. We can't minimize it if we don't get intentional about it. So this means we need to have some tough talks with some Christians. And our text here in John 8 is an example of what I'm articulating. Yeah, our foundational passage here provides us with an amazing example of this truth. Don't miss this. The Bible says Jesus is minding his business, teaching in a crowd. And there are people, Jewish scholars and leaders, who bring him a woman who's a lawbreaker. Watch this. They take the woman from where they found her bring her probably by force to the temple, put her in front of the crowd just to trap Jesus. Y'all, come, come on, we read it. It's John 8. The Bible says in verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have an abase, a basis for accusing him. This wasn't even about the woman. This was a power struggle between new spiritual leadership and old spiritual leadership these jewish leaders felt like they were losing influence to jesus and so they're trying to discredit jesus and so people get caught in the middle of power struggles between jesus and between leaders who want to dress their ego y'all aren't talking to me so they get hurt because they're caught in the middle of leaders who are more concerned about their power and their prestige and their possessions than they are people. Yeah. 
And how many people have been traumatized? Because they've got caught in the middle of some of our mess. They're just trying to sing. <laughs> yeah, they're just trying to sing. But, you know, here we are. They just want to serve. Yeah, it's like, listen, listen, I love the church. I just want to serve. And they're just trying to serve. And here they are caught in the middle. And they become casualties. And they get hurt. And we ignore them. And keep on having church services. But this, this text is, 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 is really interesting. They brought this woman to Jesus. They were trying to trap him. You see, if Jesus went against the law, they could accuse him of blasphemy. But if he said execute, the, so that would have been a spiritual violation. But if he said execute the sentence, it would have been a legal violation. Because according to John 18, 31, only Romans could execute someone, not Jews. Don't miss this. So he sensed they were setting a trap. And this is what they're doing. Are y'all ready for this? So they pull this woman. She's wrong. She's wrong. So we're not minimizing that. I want you to see the difference between Jesus' response to her being wrong. And the religious response to her being wrong. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So we're not questioning wrongness here. And this is one of the reasons, this, 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 this is so important. This is one of the reasons we got to park here for a minute. Because I want you to see the difference in responses. So they get this woman, probably bring her by force. Put her in front of other people. And act as if. They're accurately applying scripture. This woman is embarrassed. But, listen to me, she didn't commit this act by herself. Come on. And the scriptures, Leviticus 20, chapter 10, the, the scripture says the man and the woman. That's Leviticus 10, 20. Check it out. The man and the woman should have been put to death. So what you have is people selectively applying scripture, saying this applies to the woman, but it does not apply to the man. And the selective application of scripture always leads to trauma. So we're going to pull this one out because of what they did, but not bother. Oh, 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 boy, I wish I could say it. I wish I could say it. They were selectively applying scripture. So what Jesus does is he kneels down and starts doodling in the dust. And then he's, <laughs> he says to them, he says, he says, all right, no problem. I see you selectively applying scripture. No problem. He said, no problem. Let the one of you that's without sin cast the first stone. Watch this. He says, because you're not only selectively applying scripture, you're guilty of classism when it comes to sin. Yeah. 
So you want to categorize and put one one in one category and another in another category. So what Jesus says is this. He says, okay, the one that's without sin, you throw it first. Watch this. Because Deuteronomy 17, 7 says the witnesses must throw first. So Jesus tells them, the one of you without sin, go ahead. This is what the Bible says. But before you do, let me just write something. Because I know, you know, they don't know. So you'll throw the rock as long as you know they don't know. So let me start doodling in the dust because I won't let you know. I know. You're not hearing me. He said, I know you are disqualified to throw the rock that's in your hand. But because you hadn't been caught, you think you're clear. So he says, the Bible says he starts writing and one by one they leave. I believe, this is eisegesis, but I believe he starts writing a list of different sins. And as he got to theirs, they said, excuse me, praise Watch this. Jesus then stands back up and asks the woman, who's here to condemn you? She said, no one. He responds, neither do I. Go and sin no more. (sighs) Did he lower the standard? (laughs) He models a better way to motivate people to reach it. Grace doesn't lower the standard. Grace is a better motivator for people to actually reach it because some people associate a standard with rocks he said no grace is a better motivator for people to reach my standard now when he says who's here to condemn you that's not a cute saying when he says who's here to condemn you he's operating based on the reality of Deuteronomy 19.15 that says you cannot convict anyone of any crime except on, on the testimony of only one witness. Y'all missed it. <laughs> so when he says, who's here? And she says, no one. He says what well, the Bible says. You can't be convicted of a crime. See, this is the way grace works. This is the way Jesus works. He takes the same Bible that people try to use to keep you bound. And he's going to use that same Bible to set you free. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah, the same book that says don't do it is the same book that says when sin would abound. Grace would that much more. The same book that says don't do it is the same book that says that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He used the same book that the religious were using to keep people bound. He used it to set people free. I want you to see this though. In the text, are y'all ready for this? Are you sure? In the text, Jesus has to rescue people from his own religion. Wow. Wow. 
That's what's sad about this. He's a Jew. He's a Jew. And he has to come in and rescue people from his own religion. See, let's, let's pause for a minute and let's think about this woman. How do you think she feel about the church now? No, no, no. Think about that. Does she want to go the next Sabbath? Because those men that did that too are still around. We don't even know if she's fully clothed. So she's probably exposed. Y'all missed it. Should have been covered. But was exposed. So now she's got to live through the shame of exposure to people who have no authority or ability to remedy. Exposure is for the purpose of adjustment. So the exposure should be to those who can make the adjustment. So then she just exposed randomly because they feel like they entitled to know what's going on with her. How do you think she feel about spiritual leadership now? What's her issues with authority? What kind of trust issues is she going to have? How, what, what does she think God thinks about her based off of the way they handled her? This woman was probably, if it were not for Jesus, she would have been living in trauma because of the church. Christians, we got to have some tough talks. Because some of us, you, you notice I'm not dealing with some of the specifics in terms of the, like the nature of her sin and dealing with gender differences. Because this is what I learned with Christians. When you start doing that, people start exempting themselves outside the text. They say, so I haven't done that, so this doesn't relate to me. But this woman can represent anybody whose private failure in any area has become public knowledge. So if you are a man, you can, should relate to this woman. It could, be, it could be the latest arts and entertainment figure whose personal issue has now become viral on social media. Y'all not talking to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's what it could be. It could be a political figure whose issue now is spread all across the news. It could be spiritual leaders or churches issues. That's who this woman represents. What are rocks? Rocks are anything that cause unnecessary injury to somebody who's already injured. We may not throw thrown rocks, but have we tweeted tweets? Come on. It's a rock. And there are different kinds of rocks that we've got to deal with 
as Christians because it's causing trauma. I know we don't want to hear this kind of teaching. We want to have church and then throw rocks. We want to tell, we want to tell everybody Jesus loves them and then throw rocks or ignore the people that are dealing with rock wounds. And I want to lift up some rocks we need to talk about in Christian spaces that have traumatized people. The first rock, it's about to get worse, y'all. So, I mean, I don't, if it's been tough now, it's about to get worse now. Right? Okay. We got to deal with number one. We need to talk about the rocks of legalism. Legalism, a pejorative descriptor. It, it is the direct and the indirect attachment of behaviors, disciplines, and practices to the belief in, in, or, to the belief in order to achieve salvation and right standing before God. It, it's emphasizing a need to perform certain deeds in order to gain salvation as opposed to a belief in salvation through the grace of God bestowed upon the individual through faith in Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many people have been impacted because of legalism. Adding requirements, adding rules and regulations as stipulations for a relationship with God that God doesn't require. Y'all not ready? Come on, we're going here. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many people I grew up with who grew up in spaces that meant well. This is not a critique, it's an observation. So I'm not critiquing the organization, but we got to deal with how some of these things traumatize people. People who literally could not play basketball because their tradition told them it was worldly. Y'all not come here? Little girls who had to wear skirts playing kickball. See? Because their tradition told them it was worldly. And then once they left the house and they had to deal with all of these options and all of this freedom, they were not prepared to properly manage it. Traumatized. Legalism. Adding requirements and rules. I'm not talking about ethics. I'm talking about requirements and rules as stipulation for a relationship with God that God didn't require. Y'all have, I'm just telling you, and maybe some of you, this is not in your relational orbit, so maybe you're not aware of it, but it is. You don't know how many people I have to regularly convince that God loves you. I think we're so tone deaf as believers. We have no idea how many people struggle to even believe I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. Do you know what it's like to live life wondering whether or not God loves me based on my behavior that week? And legalism all of us imperfect. Nobody gets all the scripture right. But legalism, the perpetuation of legalism is not just a result of misinterpretation of scripture. It's a result of arrogance. Yeah. 
That's the problem. It is people who are, who are unwilling to relook at what they've always believed to see if they've been interpreting that passage right. Because these people here in the text were misapplying the law and they didn't even know it. And there are times we are misapplying the scripture and we don't even know it. This is tight. This grown folks. Okay, number two. It's, it's getting worse though. It's only getting worse. Okay, number two. We need to talk about the rocks of racism. Now, I'm, I'm getting ready to go here. Racism is what James calls, the book of James, the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality, that's, that's racism. Now, we need to wrap our head around this, okay? Many people misunderstand the sinful nature of racism because they raise the bar so high that very few people actually meet the standard. It's almost as if, if a person is not using racial epithets or burning crosses in somebody's yard, then they're not racist. Or there, there is no, no sin of racism. Come here. People also incorrectly assume, look at me, that racism has to be intentional or deterministic. Meaning that I have to be trying to be this way to be this way. Or I have to be aware of it to be this way. Now, here's the issue. Why is it that with every other sin, you can operate in it sometimes and not be aware of it? And it has to be brought to your attention. Why is it that people feel like racism is the only sin that I'm always aware of? Sometimes some people have to show you that's pride. Come on. But, but sometimes people incorrectly assume that if I'm wrestling with racism in any kind of way, I'm going to know that. Not so. The, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful. Yes. Yes. Am I making sense here? Yes. And can I tell you how many people I'm talking about now that are wrestling with Christianity not exclusively, but especially people of younger age demographics and people of color. Do you not understand the evangelistic hurdles we have to jump over to reach people and tell them become a part of a religion that has made it clear to a bunch of other groups of people, you're not welcome here. But somehow, racists feel at home. See, this is too much. I know it. I'm not backing up, though. No, 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 no. Like, we really good at making other people groups. Like, uh, there, there are a bunch of people groups I can, that I can talk to, and they say, I don't feel comfortable there. Why is it that racists feel so home, at home in Christianity? Because there are a bunch of other people y'all don't make feel at home. But you know why this ain't got address? Arrogance. Absolutely. Arrogance. Because when people have been accustomed to being the teacher, they no longer want to be students. So when you've been a teacher so long, you want to be a student. So when it's time for you to take a seat and learn, you can't. 
and we're not talking. Come on, let's go here. And some of them won't, can't learn from some people. Yeah, they, you're not willing to listen to something, but it's unconscious. Why can't I help? Why won't you let me help you with this? If you respect my training and my theological pedigree, why won't you let me help you? It's probably one thing. Yeah, it's probably, it's, it's probably, it's probably one thing. And it's killing the body. It's undermining our credibility. And you cannot say you're serious about the spread of the gospel and not address the things that are actually getting in the way of the gospel being spread. Now, anybody that knows me, you know I'm a bridge. I've always lived a diverse life. Have a diverse circle. So I'm addressing this issue because it's a kingdom issue. And we got to move past false peace. To real reconciliation. Because there's a whole generation that wants nothing to do with the church. Because we won't deal with our racism. You mean to tell me my mother-in-law who's still alive now. She's still alive. Who had to drink from a separate water fountain. She's still alive. See see, people go back to slavery. My mother-in-law is still alive. She had to drink from separate water fountains. I got aunts and uncles who had to sit on the back of the bus. So if they still around, then the people who put them there still around. See y'all, come on, come on. And they raise some of people who are leading in churches. You think that's not, you think that's not around? You mean you think, a, you think a little bit of that didn't get into them? I mean, just a little bit. And you think when they in hospitals and in courtrooms and on police forces and in churches, you think that that affect them unconsciously when it comes to decision making? It's a rock and it's traumatizing people. That when people are dying on the streets, the first thing we ask is, what did they do? And if we aren't addressing this, it makes me think, I don't know if we really care about the spread of the gospel with all people. I think it makes me wonder, do we just really want power? The spread of it with your people. Talking about something that divides us isn't divisive. That's what some people think. This is divisive. No, it's not. Talking about something that divides us isn't divisive. And he wants us to deal with it. And we need to stop denying that it exists. I'm done. Number three, it only gets worse. This is my last one. Yeah, it is what it is, guys. Yeah. I love this season I'm in. Well, listen, when you get free... You get free, you just be like, what? I mean, yeah. Hey, what? <laughs> yeah. Here it is. Number three, it's the rock of sexism. Now, I'm not going to get into an argument. Uh, every local church has the right to ob- interpret the scriptures. 
to the best of their ability and then implement that interpretation in their church. So people believe differently than us. So I'm not talking about, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to get into theology and biblical interpretation about women and things of that nature. But when I say sexism, I'm talking about the prejudice, the stereotyping, and the discrimination against women on the basis of their gender. And that exists in church. It's like we want your tithes, but not your input. Yep. Tithe, serve, support, just don't say nothing. Don't lead. Stay, stay in your place. Stay in your place. Subject yourself. Subject yourself to inappropriate comments. Live in an environment where you are objectified. Just don't say nothing. I'm not arguing about whether or not theologically you believe a woman can lead. That's, I mean, we've discussed where we land here and that's, that's your right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the blatant, domineering, disrespectful, patriarchy. It's really cultural that we call biblical male leadership. It is the antithesis of the ultimate expression of leadership in scripture, who's Jesus, who models a different kind of leadership, servant leadership. A leadership that doesn't make people follow, but makes them want to follow. But we're telling people, come on over here. Be a part of this. <laughs> See, that's why I love our church. I love Change Church. I love it. You can't pull me away from it. I've had people who tried to, but you can't pull me away from it. Because... What I value is what I believe the kingdom values. And that is this honoring of all people who are image bearers of God and making a commitment to say, not to say that your feelings won't ever be hurt. You can, your feelings are going to be hurt in any relationship with anybody. If you play tennis, your feelings are going to be hurt. But to say, we want to create a safe space where you're developed and not destroyed. We don't want to be like the Pharisees in the text. We want to be Jesus. And say, let's rest. We want to rescue you from a religion that's lost its way. This is what's so amazing about trauma is that we can assume sometimes that if trauma is not extreme then we hadn't experienced it like come on like we can think that okay if if i if i'm not crying or can't sleep at night or have anxiety then that's not trauma when many of us have dealt with various degrees of trauma like if you've been under abusive or exploitive or emotionally unhealthy leadership you've been traumatized 
you just probably have enough emotional resilience because of what you went through to light in life to tunnel through it. That's trauma. To have to look at Saul, who should be looking out for you, and dodge spears that he's throwing at you. And you got this conflict and relationship because you see two sides. And there's a side you love that keeps you there. But there's another side that's threatening your well-being. That's got you dodging who you love. And people are sitting and living through this all in our churches and all in our pews. And we don't care. I told you all this story. There was a, a, a young lady. Her name is Lori Freeman. And I went to Lori and I asked Lori to provide leadership. She's an amazing leader. I said, Lori, uh, would you provide leadership to our West Hampton location? And she's just an incredible leader. She's been at that location since day one, serving when we were in a school, setting up chairs. She's been in, on our administrative team, whole nine yards. And um, she agreed immediately, and she and I were talking through, and she just wanted to wrap her head around something, and she asked me a question. And when she asked me that question, it broke my heart. Because I never want anybody in our church to ask the question. She wasn't asking based off of our church. I think she was asking based off of the church. She's like, you know, we had somebody else who was a woman lead a location before. How was her experience as a woman leading? And I said to myself, I long for a day. Well, that's not a question you got to ask. Am I going to be treated differently? Because of my gender or my race or my class. But it's happening. We will never eradicate it. But we can minimize it. And our church is going to do our part. Because we are not this or that. We are this and that. And those cultural tensions that exist in the world will be barriers we break down in this house. Come on. Whether it's Haitians and Jamaicans and Dominicans and Hispanics and Mexicans, black and white. There's no male, female. Jew, Gentile, bond or free, all are one in Christ. I'm done, but I want to do something. For me, for the most part, I've had amazing church experiences. I've been under amazing leadership. I don't know what it feels like to be spiritually exploited. My first spiritual leader was my father, Timothy Daniels. And the way he raised me, he didn't even put pressure on me to live like a preacher's kid. He loved me well enough to help me fall in love with God on my own. He was my father, but he was my friend. I talked to him about stuff I ain't talked to my friends about. That was my first spiritual leader. Henry Hankins in Jackson, Mississippi, that was my second. And he's probably made the greatest contribution in my life. In those formative years when I was in college, my love for the word of God, if you watched him teach, you would see him when you see me. He would sit on his couch. He called me Son Daniels. 
He has a bit of a speech impediment. He said, son Daniel, come here. He said, I was reading this morning. Let me show you what I was reading. And that excitement and enthusiasm for the word. I saw it in a man who'd been pastoring 30 years. Who was still alive when he taught God's word. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't fussing. He was still in love with God's people and God's word. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to finish like that. And he taught me how to go deep and not just wide. Is that even when a person transitions from my leadership, he taught me how to serve them in such a way where I make an impact that they could say, my season's up, but he made a qualitative difference in my life. It wasn't just big church. It was big change. That man changed my life. I met Donald Hilliard when I got to New Jersey and started pastoring. And for the past several years, my life has been radically revolutionized with R.A. Vernon. So all of my experiences have been amazing. I don't know where I would be without those. And so my heart breaks when people share with me. They ain't had that experience. And I want to say to you, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for times you got caught in the middle. You were just trying to serve. And you got caught in the middle of people who had different agendas. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for how you may have been exploited. Used up, thrown away. I'm sorry. But even though at times, and I'm a part of the church, our church, my father, Timothy Daniels, taught me this. When I went into pastor, he said, son, God's people are not all that they're supposed to be. But God will be everything he promised he would be. And I want to tell you that today. And I just want to pray healing over you. Because the enemy wants to use trauma to cause you to give up on God's plan A. There is no plan B. Jesus is coming back for a church. And I'm talking to somebody who's just watching today and you actually through with church. And you're hearing this message. And you feel God calling you back. Because at this point, more than lights, camera, and action, you want safe. Not perfect, but safe. I want to pray for you. Because when you get it, it's nothing like it. Father, I have to the best of my ability tried to faithfully articulate what you burdened my heart with. Now the book of Acts tells us that you confirmed your word with signs and wonders. I pray for that today. I've taught about trauma and healing. Now I pray that you would go deep into the cracks and crevices of our heart and uproot anything that we may be unaware of that has formed as a result of that trauma. Bitterness, resentment, distrust, mistrust. We pray that you pull it up by the root 
And may today be a day that we experience miraculous, accelerated healing, or you set us on our journey of healing. I pray that you lead us all to safe places and safe spaces. That we can be the people you've called us to be. And we can build the church you've called us to build. I pray against the rocks of legalism that are being thrown at your people. And I pray against the rocks of racism that so many of my brothers and sisters are having to dodge. I pray against the rocks of sexism that diminish my sisters and relegate them to second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus for a revolution. Let it begin in this house and let it spill over until the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Clap your hands in this studio. Jesus, you're all I need.